Hey, everybody. Welcome to Church Coffee, Christianity, Conservatism's Culture. One of your hosts, Walter. I'm your co-host, Rob, and today we have Zachary Elliott. He's founder and chief of the Paradox Institute. He's written three books on sex and gender and a producer of numerous animated videos on, on sex differences. He's quite prolific on Twitter, which is where I found him, and his fascination with biology and sex and desire to learn and educate people led him to create the Paradox Institute in January 2020. Zach, Zach Elliott, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on, guys. It's All right. So, first question is: uh, Do you one? Do you drink coffee? If so, what's your favorite coffee? You'll you'll be sad to hear that I, I do not drink coffee. <laughs> even with um, the young one. Even with the young one. Yep. Yep. No. No caffeine, really. I mean, once in a while, I have like a a soda. So, like, I guess my favorite soda would probably be a root beer. Always, I've always loved root beer. Good um, choice. Am, am yeah. I? Is it? Is it Goch to ask? roughly your age zachary yeah so it's my age i am 25 yeah yeah no, um, i'm a, I'm a if you're not drinking coffee after 30 i would be worried about your mental health honestly yeah it's pretty important to sometimes you gotta just you need to pick me up <laughs> yeah yeah at 25 i i i had plenty of energy maybe walter did. yeah that, that makes sense so maybe maybe that will change as i get older yes <laughs> Be, being um, being 37 four kids i'm kind of like i go to bed and i can't and i'm like oh i can't wait for that first cup of coffee in the morning <laughs> <laughs> but i should probably anyways you know eventually get off the caffeine because i'm sure it's bad for me too much is but it's okay once in a while you'll be fine uh so what zach what's your story how did you end up uh founding paradox institute and who and what have have influenced your journey along the way to, to writing about sex differences yeah. biology gender all that all that stuff being on the being on twitter i will never call it x uh being on twitter and yeah. just being quite prolific there like what what's the kind of life story trajectory type deal? yeah so um my story will surprise people so a lot of people assume that I'm a biologist and I'm not a biologist. My, my background is actually in architecture and that's where I went to school for. And then in architecture school, I became very interested in biology and I was very interested as to why male and female were being denied in our culture. And at the same time, like understanding what male and female were and also the differences between men and women and, and the differences between males and females across different species. And, understanding that variation there. And so I wound up doing a lot of research into the scientific literature uh, when it comes to like personality differences, when it comes to behavior, when it comes to the uh, development of the sexes in the womb and showing, you know, looking at like how they're, they're real categories, obviously, and there's plenty of differences that are very profound and very important. And so I, I come at things from like really wanting to learn and like compile and, and research. And I love writing. So uh, it's, it was part of a fulfilling aspect to, to me to just write about this stuff and start to help others learn about it as I'm also learning about it as well. Where, so where did you do your undergrad? I did my undergrad at Oklahoma state university. Um, okay. is went that the there, Sooners? No, close. It's otherwise the, the uh, Cowboys. My bad. My bad. <laughs> I grew up, I grew up actually watching the Sooner, the Sooners with, uh, college football. So my family was like a huge O, OU fan. I wound up going to uh, Oklahoma State. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. And yeah, um, just kind of as a as a quick intro, since we're mm -hmm. just doing this, um, this uh, even though we're a conservative Christian podcast, I think uh, we're 
well, I'll, I'll broadly speak for Walter in that we are for First Amendment rights, free speech, all that. And we do live in a, you know, depending on how you cut the cake, but definitely a liberal democracy, liberal in the classic sense in that um, everyone gets a vote, everyone gets a voice. And just because you have like a degree in architecture doesn't mean you can't, you know, say, hey, this is a man, this is a woman. Why? Mm-hmm. Here's the evidence. Let's let yeah. good argument and facts and reason back it up. And, mm-hmm. and you know, free um, and a free and open society should be able to, to do that. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to plug that real quick. But yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, please, no, that's please continue. Uh, so also I've in that process of I've, I've been doing this for seven years now. So I've been writing and researching about sex differences for that long. And I've also worked with Ph.D. biologists on this topic, evolutionary biologists and developmental biologists in my videos and my writing. And so learned a lot from them as well. And, and then in 2020, I noticed that there was really, I felt like there was a huge missing link of good content that was digestible and aesthetically pleasing on sex differences. And so um, I've also had experience in motion graphics and, and video editing. So I took those skills and applied them to creating animated videos on sex and gender to teach people in short, maybe five minute animated videos about those different types of concepts. And I extensively cite the scientific literature there. So it's it's very clear where I get my sources from. And if people are interested, they can always refer to those citations. And I just want to always be very open, you know, as to where that information comes from. Uh, so that was how I started the Paradox Institute. And yeah, and and, and, yeah. and just to cut in there also, mm-hmm. like uh, Zachary sent us his book Binary. I think that's your most recent book. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a, I studied history and political science along with engineering, um, and so I'm a big love, love. I, I especially love footnotes, but you having just pages of endnotes at the end of each of uh, these short, very readable chapters. But like sometimes, like, I think one like. One of your chapters was like a half, probably close to a third of like citing your sources, which is mm-hmm. bravo, bravo, bravo. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, there were like the the overview chapter had like 40 plus sources, I believe. Uh, at the end of the book, there's about 280 different peer-reviewed sources that are cited there. So yeah, when it comes to that, it's very important. It, it, it helps people understand where the information comes from. They can read more if they want to. And, and yeah, so now with the Paradox Institute, I've added a whole team. We have, uh, my fiance actually is a digital artist and animator, and she helps with a lot of the design and direction of the videos and also the design of the thumbnails for the articles. And she's a great communicator on sex and gender topics. And then we also brought in a few other writers, uh, one who's a PhD neuroscience student and another one who is a uh, bachelor's in um, medical anthropology and working in mental mental ho- health uh, hospitals and things like that. So uh, sh- they're all just great, and they've really helped expand the Paradox Institute beyond just the original animated videos that we started with. And so that's where I began. That's my background. So and and, and outside of the just like love of learning, which I very much share. Um, what's been some who or what's been some big influences outside of just you know like i like to read i like to write i, I like to animate i like to for a be- lack of a better term uh teach or, or pass along the knowledge that i've, I've 
And so what is, is there a primary influence or several influences that you've drawn from for your videos and, and learning and that type of thing? Yeah. So the one, the first major influence when it comes to just having the courage to speak out and like realizing the importance of speaking out against this denial of biology, that person is Jordan Peterson. He's been a huge impact. Uh, my book, The Gender Paradox, was heavily inspired by his work on sex differences and understanding the quote unquote gender equality paradox. And so his, his push against uh, mandated compelled speech was huge. Uh, and then also uh, Heather Hying and Brett Weinstein, who are both PhD evolutionary biologists, they were famously, they famously had to leave uh, the college that they were teaching at in Evergreen in Washington state because their entire campus in 2017 just erupted with this, these students who were overtaking classrooms like a, like a communist revolution at an American university. And they had to leave. They were, were no longer allowed to stay there and they couldn't really work there anymore. And they're very liberal people and, and very, very left-leaning. And yet they were also speaking out against the denial of biology and this, this crazy activist mindset. And so they're great at listening to for like understanding biology, understanding how to teach other people and keeping a calm, like rational demeanor when you're interacting even with people who are not calm so yeah i think a, a, a tweet from david french right about that time he's a, a conservative writer who actually now writes for the new york times um he he said something along the lines of we need more normal or more basic i think he said normal we need more normal people right um so yeah and, and yeah. also to kind of like get ahead of any any questions where do you consider yourself on the political spectrum like liberal conservative moderate you know it's a, it's a mix of conservative libertarian so I, I i grew up in a conservative household that was also very focused on science and like evidence-based learning too so it was a good balance of that and it was all about free exchange of ideas and like just talking with my parents and being open about it. it's like great great learning like uh environment growing up and and uh my whole political philosophy is basically you know, if you're not if you're not infringing on the rights of others then you should have the freedom to uh express yourself or or express yourself in speech or behavior right uh and granted there's certain moral things that i might disagree with in terms of behavior that, but uh, i don't think that those should be like mandated you know banned or anything uh, when it comes to like polit a political philosophy and so but we can get into that in more detail but yeah it's the basics uh yeah i guess this is a conservative Christian podcast. So I guess, are, are you considering yourself uh, Christian or religious, spiritual, atheist, agnostic? Definitely Christian. So I would, I'm not like a super religious Christian, but I grew up in a Christian household. I went to a private Christian school. Um, I definitely consider myself spiritual and definitely focused on uh, God. And, and I, I have a very deep knowledge of the Bible. I, I when I went through uh uh, my private Christian school, we had a whole, whole uh, classes on Christian apologetics, understanding like evidence-based reasons for Christianity. And uh, part of the work I did in the past was actually doing that research back in high school, just like exploring uh, why the Bible says what it does, understanding uh, historical events in the Bible. And so, yeah, it's, 
that's always been a, an important aspect of my life as well. Okay. So can you define a spectrum and why can't spec, right? This is the right question, right, Rob? Nope. This is actually mine. Oh, my sorry. Bad. Yeah. Um, I had, yeah, I had arranged the questions and I thought it was going to be every other, but I jumped. Yeah. That's sorry. I misread. Um, so can you define a spectrum and why can't spectrum be applied to sex? Um, we'll embed this tweet in the um, show notes, but there's been a kind of a spectrum ish, um mm -hmm. uh just kind of graphic of like hey sex is not binary here's all mm -hmm. here's the spectrum of it so can you can you define spectrum and why can't that apply to sex and we'll put mm -hmm. this uh tweet and your breakdown of it um in the in the show notes so a, a spectrum is basically a continuous variable it can be plotted on an axis and it's it's not it's not bend data. It's not like categorical data. It's just data that exists on a continuum. So an example of that is, is height for, you know, you can plot people's height uh, values on a spectrum across a population. Uh, it, it works for many different traits that are just, that just exist on a continuum like that. Uh, weight is another example. Hormone levels can be plotted just on a spectrum. You can take a bunch of males and plot all these different hormone levels. You can plot it on an entire spectrum. You can make a, and, and then show like the, the curve, the distribution that's created from that. And that means that there's no black and white, uh, yeah, we, uh, either we, or. Uh, famously, I think almost 15 years ago now, uh, Fresh Air, they, actually, they were doing an episode on testosterone and all, the entire crew got like their mm -hmm. testosterone estrogen readings done. And it was oh, just okay. um, that's cool. really funny yeah. how some of the people, they were like, <laughs> wait, you're the skinny short guy and you've got the most testosterone levels out of like, anyone. Yeah. how is that possible? That's right? a good like, point that I do want to bring up, you know, testosterone, which I know when you, if you do have Carol Hooven on, she will talk in great detail about testosterone and testosterone. Uh, we often think of it in a stereotypical way of like, Oh, the more testosterone you have, the more masculine you'll be as a male, but it's not exactly how that works. It, it works in like a, there's a certain threshold, right? So you might have, a certain like let's say average amount of testosterone but there might be a male who has a lot more and he could be actually less stereotypically masculine than the average or the the, per, the male with the average level of testosterone so it's not like a a direct like linear relationship the more testosterone you have that means the more masculine you'll be it just it just depends on kind of a lot of different variables but if you're in that kind of range you'll have some you know those typical traits um so yeah, spectrum, it's a, con it's a continuum. It's not an either or thing. When it comes to the sex spectrum chart that was done by Scientific American, they have this complex chart with all these overlapping arrows and boxes and they plot a bunch of disorders of sex development, these rare, rare disorders that impact the reproductive system. They plot them on a quote unquote spectrum. They have typical female on one side, and typical male on the other side, and then like seven or so rare disorders in between. And it has all these complex arrows of these boxes that show like the development path of these conditions and all these arrows overlap like crazy. Now, it's not a spectrum because there's no variables, first of all, there's no, there's no X axis on this spectrum. It's just a bunch of different boxes with these overlapping arrows. The overlapping arrows show you that it, it can't be possibly be a, a spectrum. 
Now, on top of that, when you actually look at the individual DSDs, there is no logic. There's no objective method for placing them in this order. So one example is a condition called XX male syndrome. And that is a condition where a male develops with XX chromosomes, no Y chromosome. So they have a penis, testes, everything is typical, except for they, they can't really produce mature sperm, but, but they're still male. Well, XX males on this chart are placed closer to the female end than a female who has ovaries, a uterus, vagina, et cetera. So it's really strange. It, it shows you that they can't actually be objectively placed on a spectrum. And that the authors of this chart didn't have any logic or method behind placing these conditions. They just arbitrarily chose certain criteria. And again, because these conditions are so unique, they, and they affect males or females in different ways, there's no way to actually plot them on a continuous spectrum. Yeah, they, they kind of plot it in a, in a rainbow-ish type color. And my, when explaining this, my kind of understanding is like a rainbow is a, is a more or less equal, equal distributed spectrum, right? Like there's more or less equal number of colors. And that's what the, um, that's what this spectrum mm -hmm. that Scientific American came up with. Like, oh, when you look at it, you're like, oh, may, biological females are maybe 10% of the population. Biological males are maybe 10. And then there's just a lot of difference. It's like all those disorders are so incredibly rare mm -hmm. that you're using the exception to make a rule. Instead of yeah. And even then, even if they weren't rare, they still only result in males or females. Like you still have a body that's either, which we'll, we'll get into that definition, but I'll leave that for now that they're just still, they still develop as males or females. It's just that they're atypical. What is sex? What is male? What is female? Um, you know, how did these come about evolutionary? I can't say that word evolutionary. There we so, go. Yeah, that's a good question. So what is sex? First of all, sex is ultimately about the fusion of gametes or sex cells, half of the genetic material from one parent, half from the other parent and they fuse to form a new individual. And it's different from asexual reproduction where in asexual reproduction, you just uh, clone yourself. So you just copy your DNA. It's, it's, it's not any different. And with sex, uh, with sex, it's, it's very cool because it actually you know, generates genetic diversity and it reduces the chances that a bad mutation would completely demolish your population. Well, when it comes to male and female, I mentioned gametes or sex cells. The male is the sex that provides the smaller, more motile sex cell, also known as the sperm. And the female is the sex that produces the larger, slower sex cell, and that's the egg. And the egg holds all of this important so-called cytoplasmic or cellular material that's used to help develop the fetus. Whereas the sperm doesn't hold really any, so it can get away with being really small and really fast. And it just holds half the genetic material of the parent. So it's this trade-off of roles where one role is providing like all these resources for the zygote, for the fetus. Whereas this other role just gets to produce a bunch of tiny little fast gametes, sperm, and they don't, produce, they don't provide any of the resources really for the fetus. And they can kind of, um, Kind of take advantage of that, you know, resource 
that the egg has and just maximize their chances of fertilizing by producing a lot of small ones. Right. And, you know, um, I think that's actually, yeah, one of your questions was the evolutionary origins of that, like why that came about. And that's actually, it's because of that trade-off. So as organisms become more complex, they uh, also require larger body sizes, larger fetuses, right? And that requires gamete sizes to be larger. So in one sense, uh, during, during evolution, gamete sizes began to grow large. Well, that slows things down. So you also need a trade-off of uh, these smaller gametes taking advantage of that and producing them in large numbers to find the egg. So it's, it's about a, a mutually beneficial trade-off where the small gamete producing sex, they have their uh, beneficial, beneficial effects of producing small gametes. And then the other sex has their beneficial effects of producing large gametes for the zygote survival. So it's- uh, And, and yeah. we might be thinking about this from a human perspective, how males and females who are mammalian, whether they're humans or tigers or rats mm -hmm. or something, but also like plenty of organisms in general. That's why you said yeah. organisms, even plants. Right? Like plants. plants. Yeah, so yeah, that's where I was going to go. Plants, mm -hmm. you know, fish. Yep. You know, sometimes Insects. their mating rituals are wild, right? Like a, a famously male seahorses um, gestate. That might not be the right word, but they give birth, for mm -hmm. lack of a better word, to all the young. Um, but that, that's an important point. So you can see all that diversity, right? You can see the diversity in like, oh, this the, ma the male seahorse, he actually has this, these babies inside of him and they're very connected to his body still through all these resources, similar to a mammalian pregnancy. And he gives birth, quote unquote, well, he's still male because he's the sex that produces the sperm, right? And that's why this definition of sex is ultimately tied to the role that you have in reproduction, right? And that applies to plants, it applies all across animals, and it's the dominant system of sexual reproduction across all these vast species. And yes, there's some species like fungi, which don't uh, have, they have what's called mating types. They don't have sexes. They can produce tons of different gametes, but they're all the same size. So they're not differentiated in terms of sperm and egg like the sexes have. Um, so yeah, that's, that's an important thing to understand is that the definition of sex is far more about reproduction and the role in reproduction and in what you're providing, sperm or eggs, as opposed to just your chromosomes or just what your body looks like. You know, it's not, it's not really what it's about fundamentally. So why, why, uh, I don't think I asked this, had this question. Why, why is it not about like X versus Y? Mm -hmm. um, I think I might be jumping on a oh, little bit. Yeah. Yeah. That's so that's a good question. It's, you know, it's often used in, in argument tactics when it comes to humans that, well, males are XY, females are XX. Now that's true, but XX and XY are not the definition for sex. They are what's called sex determination mechanisms. So genetic uh, chromosomal systems that are involved in developing a male, or sorry, in developing a fetus into a male or developing a fetus into a female. Right. So they, they hold the genetic material, like the instructions that, that tell you whether this fetus will develop into a male or into a female. And so those are very, very accurate markers in humans for sex 
XX versus XY. They're not foolproof because of, as we'll get into one, there's disorders and two, these systems can evolve over time, but ultimately sexes are defined by the difference in gamete size, sperm versus egg. So, okay. <clears throat> Some of these things come out evolutionary. Like why do men have nipples? Every man wants to know this question. Yeah. <laughs> Cause it's like, wow, they're kind of, kind of useless. <laughs> Um, yeah, men have nipples. It's not because we all start as female, which is a common myth, but it's just because there was no real like evolutionary reason to get rid of them. They, there's no metabolic cost for having nipples in the first place. And so it's part of an, it's part of an evolved body plan. It's just a common body plan that's associated with mammals and, and particularly humans. And so it's, there's no reason for them to be kind of taken out from that body plan. And there's other vestigial structures that are could be used as examples for that, but that's a good example of a structure that's just doesn't have a, a purpose really in, in males. And um, they actually begin before gonadal development, before any any development of genitalia. Uh, the nipples are already there and part of the body plan. So that's how God designed it, right? Okay, yeah. so chromosomes, <laughs> caro types versus genes. What what's the difference? Okay, so First of all, karyotypes, that just means your collection of chromosomes. So they'll, they will often, you'll often hear like a karyotype analysis. That's just an analysis of what chromosomes you have. And people often confuse uh, chromosomes and genes. Karyotype is to chromosomes as genotype is to genes. So genes are the full genetic profile. It's a more, it's a more, or sorry, genotype is the full genetic profile and it's a more a closer look at what is actually inside the chromosomes so it gives you a higher resolution picture and genes are um, inside chromosomes chromosomes hold uh, sets of genes they're basically containers for genes and genes specify certain instructions for proteins to be produced in the body and then those proteins carry out certain uh, actions that build structures in the body so it's all about specifying what certain cells will do for your body. That's what genes are. That real quick, that blows my mind because it's like, oh, genes, they tell the body to do something. They produce these proteins. Oh, these proteins are actually cancer. And you're like, what in the world? Like what, why self-sabotage? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So there could, just, there could be a yeah. mutation, for example, on one of your genes. And that could tell a cell to keep dividing and dividing and dividing. Uh, when it's not supposed to. And that is an example of cancer. And so that's, yeah, it's crazy that genes can turn on you for sure. And uh, yeah, it's, it's yeah. unbelievable. Okay. So um, did, did, I hope I didn't interrupt your uh, thought, oh, no, no. but okay. So what's the difference between defining and determining sex? Mm -hmm. So defining sex is just what sexes are what male and female are, right? It would be like saying, what is a heart? What is uh, an eye, right? A heart is a organ that pumps blood. The male is the sex that produces sperm. It's very, you know, pretty simple like that, right? Well, with determining sex uh, in biology, it's a specific technical term. So it doesn't mean like how we observe or identify sex in a person. It's more about what are the mechanisms involved in deciding whether an embryo will become a male or female. 
And those systems are diverse across species. So in humans, certain genes on the chromosomes tell the fetus to develop as a male or female. Specifically, the SRY gene on the Y chromosome tells the fetus to go down the male pathway to differentiate the gonads into testes. And then if that SRY gene is not activated, there's a certain genetic network that goes to the female pathway and female genes are upregulated and cause differentiation of the gonads into ovaries. So that's what happens in humans. In other, in other animals, for example, alligators, they don't have sex chromosomes like humans. So they don't have XX or XY at all. And their sex is determined by the temperature at which the eggs are incubated. So uh, I believe that males, I get this sometimes flipped around with crocodiles, but males, I think are the sex in alligators that develop at higher temperatures. So a male egg will be an egg that is exposed to higher temperatures and it will develop down the male pathway. They'll have testes, they'll produce sperm. Uh, whereas lower temperatures will result in females being produced. And then there's a bunch of different sex determination mechanisms across other species, very complicated, very weird, uh, but there are some commonalities. So for example, even in some plants, there's XX and XY, where XY, there's uh, males, plant, male plants who have XY uh, and female plants who have XX. So they use the XY system, just like humans. Um, and it's, it's crazy, yeah. There's other, other plants that just use systems entirely different to that. So, but we can consistently define male and female despite those different mechanisms by the gamete that they provide in reproduction or the, the way that their anatomy is organized to produce a certain gamete type. Is there such thing as a neurological sex? For instance, female brain in a male body? No, so there is scientific research to show that there are differences within males and females in the brain in certain traits on average. However, that doesn't mean that you can be actually born with a quote unquote opposite sex body uh, or sorry, opposite sex brain in your body. And first of all, it's, there's a few points to make about that. First of all, it's a metaphysical position. So it's, it's claiming that, oh, I should have developed down this pathway or I should develop the brain like this and it mismatches my body. Right. And so that's unfalsifiable. You can't actually prove or deny that. The second thing is, Yes, certain, uh, some people with gender dysphoria, which we'll get into, certain people who identify as trans, specifically, who have gender dysphoria, they sometimes have brains that look like they have traits more typical of those seen in the opposite sex. But there's a confounding variable. The confounding variable is sexual orientation. So when those studies that do account for sexual orientation have been done, they have found that those differences go away. So for example, a trans person who is homosexual, they will have a brain that is more typical of homosexuals of their sex. Likewise with a trans person who is heterosexual. So for example, a male who is, is just still attracted to females, a heterosexual trans person, they will have brains that just typically match those of a heterosexual male if they're also a heterosexual male, right? So- But those, those, maybe some of those studies, maybe all of them, I'm not sure, but those studies, my understanding is are, are, are quite small, right? They're like mm -hmm. eight, 
20 participants. Small participants, yeah. So yeah. that's a all that's also a big problem, which I think is important to point out. That, I, I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I think statistically to even get something on a rough population to to even mm -hmm. make it somewhat akin to a general population, I think you need at least three or four hundred, something like that, mm -hmm. to, to even like yeah. get on the playing field of it being like somewhat statistically average. Now like yeah. You've got Pew Research who will interview thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands mm -hmm. of people to make sure their statistical averages are are super precise. But I, I think one, I took statistics in college. Mm -hmm. I got a B plus. I'm not exactly like, you know, statistical, huge, mm -hmm. know it all about that. But, you know, it, that's, I mean, it, it, a good thing about any, especially research on populations how many participants did they have? If they had 12, that's like, okay, well, that's kind of interesting. But, you know, yeah. personally, if I see a, if I see any study, whether it's on like Muslims or Christians or Jews or trans people or gay people or straight people or white people, whatever, if it doesn't have meet that, I think it's, I think it's around 400. If it doesn't have 400 participants, it's like, that's, yeah, that's not even statistically good. You, you, can't, yeah, you can't, you can't infer anything about the population. No, and, th and that means when you have that small sample size that you can't really uh, account for confounding variables very well. There can be many things that affect those results, especially at a small sample size. And that's a big problem with this re research as well. Uh, not to mention the fact that a lot of times there's no uh, kind of understanding of whether these trans participants have been taking cross-sex hormones that can impact the brain. Uh, Sometimes the participants are just, they're all taking cross-sex hormones. And so you don't know where they started, right? In terms of their, their brain neuroscience. And so that's a big problem. Now, granted, if let's just say, at, let's just take it at face value, if those findings are actually true, uh, that just shows you that there's a difference in homosexual versus heterosexual typical brains. Or let me rephrase, there's differences between uh, people who are homosexual in terms of their brains on average versus people who are heterosexual on average, right? In certain regions. Uh, that doesn't mean that you're suddenly the opposite sex because of that. It just means you have atypical regions in your brain. Uh, now, what I do want to mention, I said that those differences go away. Well, in other studies that look at other regions of the brain, they have found that those with gender dysphoria they seem to have regions in the brain involved in self-perception that are weakened, weakened connections in those areas, which seems to point to the idea that they're not seeing themselves accurately as they are. There's this mismatch in terms of what they see and who they actually are. Now to fix that, that doesn't mean giving them cross-sex hormones and puberty blockers. That, that just is indicating that, oh, there might be some neurological element going on. Now, whether that's an actual cause or not is completely unclear. There's no way to, to say whether it's causal or not. It's just, this is what their brain looks like in these certain regions uh, from this sample size. So, yeah. So what um, what is gender and what's the difference between that and, and sex? So first of all, with gender and sex, you know, they have historically always been just used as synonyms, right? Gender is just a word that people use to describe sex, male or female. Now with uh, what you'll see is there's gender expression, there's gender identity, and this explosion of different like gender related terms that 
or like this new ideology about identifying as male or female and this like mismatch idea that you can have a gender that's mismatched with your sex. And it's about conflating those two things together. It's about conflating maybe social differences between males and females with actually being male or female. And so they'll say that, oh, my sex is male, but my, my gender, I'm a woman. And the problem with that is you're identifying with, with a bunch of uh, either uh, socially created stereotypes or caricatures of what a man or woman uh, looks like or is quote unquote supposed to be in your mind. And it doesn't change your sex. And they like to conflate those two together a lot and say that, oh, no, I'm actually female <laughs> too. They go further and they conflate the two together, even though they love saying that they're completely separate things as well. So that's the difference, I think, between sex and gender is just um, one's more of, one used to be used as a synonym, gender used to be used as a synonym, but now it's often used as a completely created from thin air construct. Yeah, my my... I think reading Deborah So's book, um, she's like, okay, like gender is what's in between your ears, sex is what's in between your legs. That being said, our our conception of gender often relies on sex, right? Like gender is what's masculine and what's feminine, right? Like a right. hundred years ago, it was masculine to wear high heels and the name Ashley mm-hmm. was male, right? I know one guy named Ashley now. I know tons of females named yeah. named Ashley. I I mean, yeah, when I wear like some nicer um, shoes, they might have, a, you know, a little bit of a lift, but like mm-hmm. men do not wear heels, heels anymore, mm-hmm. right? But women wear heels all the time. So I guess blue is is gendered for, mm-hmm. for males, right? Pink for mm-hmm. females. But that's also culturally specific. But uh, yeah. Dr. So's Dr. book was like, yes, gender is cultural and it's in our head, but like it is relying on right it's ultimately linked for, back for, for, to for, for lack of a better term stereotypes or, or what the culture is mm-hmm. defining as masculine or feminine based on male or female right mm-hmm. that's a good point yeah i made a i made a distinction in my book the gender paradox of like sex and gender of gender being more of like the social differences that like vary within males and females uh but i've started to stay away from that actually because even even that just saying gender is like the social differences between males and females even that is using the term gender where sex could work. Like you could say sex differences, sex differences between males and females in behavior and expression. And so I've just been using that more consistently now because I think it's important to start to distance ourselves from those gender related terms because they're so tied to this ideology now. But I do agree there is that masculine feminine average within males and within females but in, in variation in terms of behavior and expression. So... What all that? So what is gender dysphoria then? So gender dysphoria is, we could say it's sex dysphoria or sex dysmorphia, similar to something like body dysmorphia or anorexia, where you believe that you should be or actually are the opposite sex and that you should uh, take steps potentially to alter your body, uh, alter the ways that you identify yourself so that you can become more comfortable uh, as attaching to the opposite sex and, and really believing that you are. And just because you have gender dysphoria or that experience doesn't mean that you should go down that pathway of trying to alter your body and trying to identify as the opposite sex because 
just like something like anorexia or body dysmorphia. By doing that, by giving into the delusion and going further into the delusion, you hurt your mental health. You potentially hurt your body. In the case of anorexia, if you if you're being told or you're telling yourself that you're really really fat and yet yet you're skinny as a bone, you know that's going to potentially kill you. And with gender dysphoria, if you're telling yourself that you're really the opposite sex and I have to change my body to really match that, you know, it's, that's going to hurt your body as well, which we'll get into that later. But, uh, and there's a contradiction there, which is that, you know, if you actually are the opposite sex, then why do you have to change your body at all? Why can't you just accept it as the way it is? Dang. I don't feel like that question's ever allowed to be proposed. Yeah. What is intersex, or I think right now, some of the literature is now moving towards DSD, uh, differences of sexual development in humans. Mm -hmm. um, and is that person actually male or female? Like is, is an intersex or DSD person a, a mm -hmm. third sex? So let's first define the term. So first have intersex and, and inter intersex is often used by activists to just mean every single reproductive development disorder that you can imagine. So uh, it's everything from like a boy who is born with uh, a misshapen penis, like a deformed penis uh, to something like somebody who like a male who has XX chromosomes. So it could be anything. It can even be, they'll even lump intersex in now with uh, women who have PCOS, which is a disorder of the ovaries where the ovaries produce too much testosterone. Yet they're still clearly women, right? So uh, that term is often used that way. Now, historically, it's intersex has often been used uh, to, to describe conditions where it might be difficult to determine uh, a person's sex at observation. So you might see babies who are born with a uh, deformed genitalia. So a male might have uh, underdeveloped an underdeveloped penis or undescended testes, where the testes are in the abdomen. Or you might have a female who was exposed to high levels of testosterone in the womb. And so that impacted her genitalia and you get growth of the clitoris, fusion, fusion of the labia, where it seems to kind of look like something like a scrotum, a scrotum. But in reality, they have ovaries, uterus, fallopian tube, cervix, XX chromosomes, you know, usually fertile as females, et cetera. And so that is just, that is just to inform everybody that intersex is a misnomer term. It's meant to make you think that these people who might look different are actually the opposite sex. And they're actually, oh, this person, or, or they're actually between sexes, or they're a third sex. In reality, people with these conditions still develop as males or females. They still develop anatomy that's organized around sperm production or anatomy that's organized around egg production. And treating them treating their condition requires an understanding of how they developed, how they developed in terms of their gonads, their genitalia, their genetics. And so that's, that's intersex and how it's often used. Uh, with DSD, that just means disorder of sex development. It's a more technical term and it encompasses any disorder, any, any uh, condition that impacts the reproductive system. It could impact your gonads, your genitalia, and your genetics. And so that's basically what DSDs are. They are often used to prove that sex is a spectrum and that uh, 
they, that there's like a third sex and that people are in between sexes. But when you take a closer look at these individual conditions, you can see that they are still male or female. What are some chromosomal, chromosomal disorders then that lead to that type of sexual um, ambiguity, whether, um, and we're talking more definitively than just like, all right, we have a smaller penis or mm -hmm. um, something like that. What it like, so, some that are thrown out are like five alpha mm -hmm. reductancy disorder. I think I'm saying that right. Uh, 45X, 47XXY, some of, some of these things, like what, just explain some of those. Yeah. So uh, first let's start with the quote unquote easier ones, which is simpler, which is, uh, which is XXY. Kleinfelter, Klein, also known as Kleinfelter syndrome. It's a, it's a disorder where a male is and receives two X chromosomes instead of just X and Y. And he develops testes, he develops a penis, but he has usually smaller testes. He can have uh, what's called gynecomastia, which is abnormal breast tissue growth in a male. And this can impact his fertility because uh, the second X chromosome causes a lot of issues with hormones and hormone production in the testes. And so there's a host of effects. Now to treat him, you have to know what his sex is. And so men with Kleinfelter syndrome often require testosterone supplementation because of the lack of testosterone and their bodies are organized or developed for testosterone and high levels of testosterone. And so to treat them accurately requires, requires that understanding. It would, it would greatly harm them if you were giving them high levels of estrogen, like what's seen in a female. Now, when it comes to the other ones like uh, 45X or that's called Turner syndrome, it's where a female is born with only one X chromosome. And usually, you know, females have two X chromosomes, but uh, during the division of reproductive cells in the mother or in the father, that can cause an issue where a gamete doesn't have an X chromosome for some reason. So when they fuse together, you get an egg, maybe, maybe the egg has an X, but the sperm cell is missing an X. And so then you get just a fetus with a, an X chromosome, a single X chromosome. Now they still develop as females because they're missing the make male genes. And so the, like the SRY gene. So the, the gene network just goes down the female pathway like normal. The problem is two X chromosomes are usually required for ovarian development. And so the ovaries experience what's called primary ovarian uh, deficiency or primary ovarian fail failure. And so they can't produce eggs. They develop an, a normal body, normal vagina, cervix, uterus, fallopian tubes, uh, but their ovaries just can't produce eggs. There's a host of different physical abnormalities that are associated with Turner syndrome. A third to half of women with Turner syndrome have heart defects because a second X chromosome is important for, for that and females to, for heart, heart development and everything. Uh, so those are two examples that are chromosomal disorders. The other example you gave was 5-alpha reductase deficiency, 5-ARD. And that one results in a male fetus who has the typical XY chromosomes, but they're missing a special gene that is used to produce the hormone called uh, DHT. It's a, it's a big word. It's dihydrotestosterone. And it's also called super T. It's like Imagine it like a, a type of testosterone that's used to develop the male's external genitalia. 
So it's a very potent androgen that tells the external genitalia to uh, the testes to the testes to descend into the scrotum, and then the penis to enlarge and, and grow like normal. And that happens at the end of sex development in the womb. Well, these males, they're missing that hormone. And so when they're born, they're often confused for girls because their genitalia looks female. Well, they have internal testes and they have an internal male reproductive system and they have XY chromosomes. And on top of that, they produce normal levels of testosterone. And so at puberty, what happens is a lot of times they actually uh, start to masculinize the external genitalia because of that surge in testosterone. And so it often becomes clear at puberty, oh, these, these boys, these girls supposedly are actually, are actually males. Now that doesn't really happen in terms of like that confusion in more first world countries. It's very common in third world countries that, that have boys with 5ARD to confuse them with girls at, at, uh, at birth. But that's an example of a quote unquote intersex condition. And in reality, like as I described, uh, they're still males. They still are often able to produce sperm. And even if they can't, they have the anatomy that's organized around sperm production. So those are, I think, good examples to, uh, good three examples to understand. And we can go into more detail about others, but those are three good ones. Do these or, or similar-ish parallel types of disorders happen in, in other mammals that we know of? It does to a degree. So anywhere where, where you have complex genetic systems involved in sex development, where there's a lot of genetic networks involved. And I mean, even if there's just a few genetic networks or a few genes, you can sometimes get a mutation. You can sometimes get a translocation onto another chromosome. You can sometimes have a complete deletion of a gene. And that's just because it's complicated when chromosomes cross over and exchange genetic material when it comes to reproduction. And so, yes, so then some mammals like rabbits, we've seen rabbits having DSDs as well. We've seen um, animals that seem to develop mixed, mixed uh, tissues, things like that, that are not fertile because it requires, you know, development requires you to go down only one pathway, male or female, when you when you kind of have mixed signals, you know, it results in infertility. So yeah, that does happen as well. Um, and I believe uh, that can, that can cause so, just so many issues in, in the same way that it can in humans. How do these DSDs, intersex disorders, do these relate at all to hermaphroditism? I think I'm saying that right. To hermaphrodites and other phylums. Uh, my current understanding is that Hermaphrodites do not actually exist in mammals, nor in pretty much any other more complex animals, such as birds or reptiles. But please correct me if, yeah. if, I'm, if I'm... That's 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 correct. Uh, so basically, you'll see that intersex and hermaphrodite are conflated. They're conflated terms. People will, will use those interchangeably. Intersex, like we described before, is about a reproductive disorder. It's It often results in infertility. It, and it doesn't result in a person or an animal for that matter, who can produce both gamete types, who can reproduce as both male and female, right? Whereas in other species that actually have an evolved sexual strategy called uh, hermaphroditism, and those species, they don't have any disorder. It's just part of their natural, healthy sexual strategy 
to develop both gonad types, to develop both testes and ovaries, and produce both gamete types. Uh, one example is a snail or, or a slug, <laughs> and they can just, they're hermaphrodites, they have both male and female organs, and they can reproduce that way as, as either sex. Another example would be clownfish or the coral goby, different types of fish. And these fish are what's called sequential hermaphrodites. Sequential means that they can change sex depending on environmental context. So for example, in clownfish, clownfish are all born males, but they can switch to being a female if the female in their population dies. And so their testes literally switch from testes to ovaries. The testicular tissue regresses and the ovarian tissue is activated through the other genetic pathway. And then they start producing eggs and their entire body changes. And so that's an example. And humans, we can't do that. As much as people who, you know, what they wish they could, uh, we cannot, cannot do that. We cannot change our testes into ovaries or ovaries into testes and produce the opposite sex type. Hey, yeah. So I think we, I think you answered my next question, the difference between sex characteristics and sex, uh, or even sex and sexual development. I, I feel like you answered that, but, um, I can go into that in a little bit more detail, just like kind of an overview of what that, what that sure. means. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, sex and sex characteristics, sex characteristics are the result of sex. They're the, we have, you have primary sex characteristics, which are your genitalia and your gonads. So your gonads, testes or ovaries, your genitalia, penis, vagina, et cetera. And those are your primary sex characteristics. They develop as a result of your sex. And then you have secondary sex characteristics. Those are things like facial hair, like breasts, uh, like male pattern baldness. That could be called a secondary sex characteristic. Things that are really tied directly to sex, but not so directly that they're directly involved in reproduction. They're more, uh, like, like the name suggests, they're more secondary traits. There are things that your sex affects, but they're not involved in reproduction. So that's, that's the difference between sex characteristics and sex. What are some advantages of post-pubescent males uh, having sports? Good question. There's a lot. <laughs> so, and 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 enjoying nuance in in most mm -hmm. sports. There are, of course, some mm -hmm. sports that a post-pubescent female or just a female in general will do better than than a male. Right. So when we're talking about sports performance for males, we're almost entirely talking about athletic performance that that relates to musculoskeletal advantages advantages that relate to higher muscle mass, higher muscle density, longer bones, uh, other things, even like cardiovascular, cardiovascular output, uh, lung capacity, right? And all these traits that I mentioned, males have them in uh, greater quantities or greater strengths. And that means that when it comes to sports that rely on musculoskeletal or cardiovascular type performance, males will have a big advantage. So First of all, let's break down kind of the sports, like what types of sports there are for performance advantage. You have something like track, track and field and just running. You have uh, swimming. You have then something like weightlifting. You have something like field hockey. And something like track, 
it has a 10% advantage for males at baseline compared to an equally trained female. That doesn't seem very large, 10%. Well, think about height. Height differences between males and females are pretty large across a population. We easily see that males are usually taller than females. It's very rare to see a very short male and a very tall female, right? Right. Well, height differences are only a 7% difference between males well, and females. Well, we, we, we should say that is also somewhat of a, of a racial category. Like today mm, I saw yeah. a, a Latino, a Latino male or just Latino. Mm -hmm. He was with a white female. Now, right. The, a, an average Latino male, I think, is like five four, five five. Right. An average white male is five nine, five ten. Mm -hmm. The average black male is, I think, five eleven to six one. Um, now, if you just look at like what is the average American male, you're you're talking like they just kind of flatten that, right? But right. you know, if you take it within roughly racial, or or I actually enjoy the the ethnic categories. Um, it's all sapiens. Um, Walter is black. I am white. We both, in my mind, we're both, we're more or less, we're definitely less images of God thanks to the fall and Adam and Eve. But um, in general, uh, I, I think yeah. genetically different races would actually be like Neanderthals and Homo sapiens. Agreed. Right. Yeah. But um, yeah, yeah, also looking at racial categories kind of also helps with that. That's true. Yeah. That way you can get but, more but accurate yes, statistics also, in terms of proportion. Yeah. Yeah, but also, but yes, in general, it is rare to see a shorter male dating mm -hmm. a taller female. Mm -hmm. And especially within those those racial categories as well. Like there, it's like clear because you're comparing, uh, you know, similar populations in terms of height, right? So there's that similar proportion. So then you can be like, okay, well, in this this uh, group, there's much higher, uh, there are much higher taller heights, you know, with for males than females. And so that, that 7% or so, it's really, you think it's big and it is big, you know, you see it easily, but it's actually pretty small in comparison to athletic performance differences. Track and field, it's 10%. And so uh, that means that, for example, high school boys consistently beat female Olympic champions in track just by their running times in the same categories. And so that shows you how big. Yeah, didn't didn't the, like I, I Walter? I think uh, the Dallas, like under eighteen male soccer team beat the U.S. Olympic female soccer team, like a yep. more or yeah, less I a think... junior non-adult, non at least non um, lawful yeah. adult. Yeah, beat. we should fact we should fact check that. But I'm I like I am ninety percent positive that that actually that 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 happened. <laughs> yeah, that sounds right. I think I remember. A, a high school boys soccer team beating the Olympic female team. And I mean, it, it makes sense. And it bears out with the data that we've, that we've seen. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Here it is. Uh, FC Dallas under 15 boys squad beat the U S national team. So not, yeah. might not have been a hundred percent the, the Olympic team, but it, 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 and it was also a scrimmage at the mm -hmm. same time. You know, if, if you saw probably even any college, Soccer, male soccer team going up against an under 15 so that this is probably I, I can't read because it's blocked but like under 15 right that is anywhere from 0 to 15 but I would only assume 13 14 year olds right. yeah like any male any male collegiate team would smoke that under 15 yeah that's crazy yeah so 
that difference is just massive. And then when we get up into weightlifting, weightlifting is a 30% difference. So that means that a male lifting at, with the same weight. So he has the same weight as his equally trained female and even same height. He lifts 30% heavier than an equally trained female. And then when it comes to things like uh, MMA, there is, an, uh, there is a 160% punch power difference between males and females in that category. And so we have seen trans identified males, males who say they're women competing against females and things like MMA. Uh, one example is Fallon Fox and he completely bashed the skull in of a like cracked her skull of this female uh, competitor. And that is because of that gigantic difference in upper body strength and punch power difference. And so, yeah, that, 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 those, that's all data on why males have a huge advantage uh, over females in sports performance. Uh, something that we can get into is you'll see a common argument that, oh, well, what about testosterone suppression? Does testosterone suppression impact sports performance? If these, if these males take years and years of testosterone suppression at like female levels, will it, will it impact their, and it, it really doesn't. It only decreases their muscle mass slash strength parameters by about two to 12%, 12% on the upper range, 2% on the lower range, and about 5% on average. That's really nothing at all. <laughs> so no, it, it does not eliminate the, the advantage that they not achieved bad. through male puberty. Yeah. Yeah. And my, my, my understanding is like a lot of that weightlifting or just general strength is kind of in this like upper body, maybe not even in abs. It's just like, it's in pectoral and, mm -hmm. and bicep muscles. Um, cause I mean, uh, as Walter and I, as and your wife all know, they went through birth and, um, there's some pretty heavy, uh, pretty heavy thigh muscles involved in that. So I would, yeah, I would not want to go up against, um, I would not want yeah. to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with, with squats, but um, yeah, or, or I remember even in, when I was in um, early high school, like you're, you're doing the presidential challenge, you're doing pull-ups, like, yeah, I could only do like four or five push-ups or four or five pull-ups, and then and then the girl next to me did like six or seven, and people were like, oh, you got to be Parker. I'm like, she's like half my weight, dude. Like, <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, like one, for example, we're, when we're like looking at those statistics, we're comparing... Um, similar categories. So, you know, we're comparing equally trained males, equally trained females. And of course, like you'll often see the argument that, well, you know, I've known plenty of males where they'll, they'll get their butt kicked by plenty of, you know, amazing female athletes. I do not want to fight Ronda Rousey. Yeah. At all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like or it's I, true. I have a friend from my swim team. She's now competes competitively in, in weightlifting. Um, mm -hmm. Like I see her carrying Atlas stones and she is just like shredded. Right. Like, yeah, you could probably knock me out with one punch. Right. And and that's the straw man that they make is that we're we're saying that every single male can beat every single female and everything. And that's not true at all. You know, we're we're comparing athletes uh, like like high high achieving athletes or athletes in in very specific competitions, right? So these these competitions are selecting for a very narrow band of the population. And that means that we're looking at like the tail ends of the distribution in terms of like athletic performance and males on the tail end of the distribution will always by and large beat females who are also in that distribution. 
um, when it comes to athletic performance on the musculoskeletal areas particularly. So, Walter, do you have any comments or, or any additions to this hotly <coughs> hot, hot topic? Especially, no, I mean, I mean, do you, do you want your, your daughters going up against men? Yeah. And transgender males, biological males who identify as females should not be allowed to play in female sports, plain and simple. Yep. Yep. I mean, I also have heard the argument, we've covered a few of the arguments. I've also heard the argument that, well, they should just be, it's, even if they have an advantage, it's irrelevant because they're women. And so they should just be, they should just be allowed in there because they're, they're women. Uh, yeah, no. <laughs> well, they're not women. That's the thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, like, exactly. well, like they, well, well, this is a good jumping off point. And, and I think it's, it, it's been, been in the news decent amount enough. Um, Carol Hubin, um, talked about in her book she also talked about it on barry weiss's podcast but uh like to tell us the case of like castor semenya like as a kind of like um intersex dsd um person who um competed very often in, in the female category yeah so can you, can you give us a little bit understanding of like someone that identifies as female that looks masculine but mm-hmm. still i think very much passes as as a female like why um and i'm depending on how you you pronounce but i mean for the most part i mean she she even i i'm sure you'll explain a little bit more but um she more or less looks like she has a, a vagina even though um she mm-hmm. uh and ovaries i believe she has as testes but yeah mm-hmm. explain that a little bit yeah so with caster caster smenio uh, is a famous athlete who has won many many competitions uh, in the female category, and it's it was revealed that and I'll, I'm just going to use he because of the DSD to just be clear, and he had a has a DSD that we actually covered, which is five ARD five alpha reductase deficiency, and this was revealed in some of the hearings and reports that were done when it, when it was coming to the case his case specifically uh, with competing in the female category. And the testimony that was made about, about this and the understanding of like his medical records and everything. And so, yes, he has five ARD. So he was born with testes, with, uh, with XY chromosomes. Uh, he produces male typical levels of testosterone. And yet, and yet his genitalia from the outside, at least at birth, you know, he, it looked female. And so he was actually raised as a female in his culture. And then as he grew up, uh, puberty hit and his testes ramped up the production of testosterone. And through that development, he developed musculoskeletal advantages that a typical male has. And his testosterone levels are, you know, at male levels because 5-ARD does not impact testosterone levels. They all have male typical levels of testosterone. And so, uh, Yes, he does identify as a woman, but he is a male with a DSD. And it's important that people understand that and understand that DSD. And we can still show respect and everything to that person with that condition. We also have to respect the female athletes and their fairness, uh, their rights to compete fairly in their sports category and not be displaced by males with even males who have developmental disorders. Who were greatly impacted by that massive, massive impact of t- 
testosterone reception throughout their development. So. Yeah. I, I was just reading about that. I, I hadn't, I've, I've never heard of that, that caster uh, until now. So that's mm -hmm. quite interesting. Uh, so what effects do puberty blockers have? <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> what effects do puberty blockers have on the adolescent developing male or female? Okay. So this one, I actually have uh, some posts about this that I'm, I'm actually going to read parts of because there's so much. It's just that there's so many effects of puberty blockers and also, which I'll get into after puberty blockers, I, I want to mention the effects of cross-sex hormones, but first let me explain what puberty blockers are. So puberty blockers are a type of drug known as GNRHA drugs, GNRHA. GNRH is a hormone in, produced in the brain that's responsible for upregulating sex, sex hormones, uh, the production of estrogen and testosterone at correct amounts in males and females. During that process in puberty, those that, that upregulation of GnRH, gonadotropin releasing hormone, <laughs> that upregulates testosterone and estrogen. And that has important impacts for development of the brain, for development of the bones and muscles and all types of other tissues in the body, including the reproductive system that's essential during puberty. So what GnRHA drugs, and the A stands for antagonists or agonists, and I, don't, I won't get into the details of that, but antagonists and agonists basically just block GnRH. They block it from being produced at normal levels. So within 30 days of taking puberty blockers, you're at chemical castration levels of sex hormones. Sex hormones are reduced 95% in 30 days. Now they're often used to treat prostate cancer patients, for example, because prostate cancer can, you know, be driven by testosterone production. So it's an important element to maybe reduce that, but they're only meant to be used short term and they're not meant to be used in children who are near puberty or during puberty and especially at long periods. And so the effects of puberty blockers are wide, wide and diverse. So let's cover females first. So with females, females, there is a reduced bone mass acquisition and bone strength. There's increased risk of obesity. There's decreased uterine and ovarian weights. There's completely absent, there's completely absent egg production and lack of a reproductive cycle. Um, there's also inhibition in terms of, uh, sorry, I'm looking at also like literature when it comes to mice, because mice have been a great, unfortunately, a great example of like what happens uh, because we don't have long-term effects of specifically puberty blockers given to kids with gender dysphoria, which is terrifying. We don't have that research available, but we do have what happens when the sex hormones are blocked in humans and in females with puberty. So one other effect is in, in female mice is inhibition of feeding. And they also saw that it was matched with hyperactivity in the hippocampus, which is significant of high anxiety and despair-like behavior and negative mood regulation. 
Well, what we see in females who take puberty blockers, we also see a similar thing. There's increased emotional reactivity. There's uh, in increased emotional and behavioral responses to fearful situations, decreased long-term decision-making. And it also de decreases the resting heart rate, weirdly enough. And it's associated with a higher risk of osteoporosis and cardiovascular disease. So, and, yeah. to, to interrupt real quick, like uh, why it just seems like these type of studies aren't allowed to go out or they're not talked about or it's uh, again, I'm not in the world of Twitter or X, whatever they call it, or you know, all those different things. But I guess if you watch the media, it you know, you're not allowed to talk about these things because that's you know, anti gender or whatever. Yeah. No, you're not. Um, I, there's a big portion where like, they don't want to, they don't want to focus on, on the long-term impacts of it because that would hurt the prescription of that, of those drugs. And these companies would get a lot less money if it came out that there's all these huge long-term side effects. And I think that's a big, a big part of it is that there's a, a money element involved. And also this, yeah. And also this drive of like, uh, wanting to save quote unquote these kids from from harm and it's not it's completely harming them it's stunting their development and not allowing them for their brain to mature naturally and to actually come to terms with their body in a natural way in the process that we all go through at puberty and it's difficult it's really difficult going through puberty especially for females with the huge changes in their bodies that and of course males have to deal with it to a degree with our bodies but it's it's just different in females. It's, it can be really it's difficult. Just, it's just not something where <clears throat> in that time, people shouldn't be making life altering decisions. Yes. You know, exactly. it, it, it's like, no, like, Hey, puberty's weird. Everyone's weird out. You're in junior high. Everything's really creepy, weird, whatever. No, not creepy. Yeah. It's just weird. Yeah. Like let the process play out. And what's yeah. the, what, what was the genesis of puberty blockers? Like, like um, it clearly, They've mm -hmm. obviously suddenly people are now like, oh yeah, you can go on puberty lockers, but like, yeah, clearly they did not start as a treatment for gender dysphoria or for being mm -hmm. non-binary or something like what do you, do you know what the genesis of why those are were developed? So the, and in terms of like the initial developmental reasons, I, I know how they're, they, how they were originally used and how they were originally used is either treatment of, of cancers to reduce sex hormone levels, like I said before, or, and also they're also used to chemically castrate sex offenders, which is really disturbing uh, that they're also used on children, but those are some of the reasons. So they were done for medical reasons. They're also actually, they're also used to treat precocious puberty, which means like, it means early or a, a puberty that's abnormally early, right? So it's, it's meant to like, like block it for a very short time but that's controversial as well. Uh, so those are some of the original uses of those GnRHA puberty blockers. I, I can briefly speak to the effects in, in males. That might be helpful as well. So when they actually applied puberty blockers to male mice to see what would happen, uh, they it left bones which failed to strengthen sexual and aggressive behaviors, which failed to develop a reduced heart size, impaired contraction of the heart, increase, increased fat mass, 
uh, decreased activity and late onset obesity. And there's also decreased skeletal muscle and, and muscle mass and decreased strength, atrophy of the genitalia. Um, and then when it comes to things like the brain, just, just failure of the brain to just mature fully. And, and so there's all these, all these effects on the body tissues, which is incredibly, incredibly disturbing. So that puberty blockers just stunt every, every aspect of development that you can think of. And a lot of those, a lot of those things that are affected are, are long-term and, and permanent. Um, so obvious question of, of the night and maybe I have my own definition of this and maybe, maybe Walter should also give some sort of off the cuff definition, but what, what do you <laughs> consider fran, transphobia? How would you, how would you define it? And what's the difference? What's, what's the, the difference between what rough your definition would be and, and, and what, activists or, or off the cuff people like use it as a yeah. use it in general? That's a good question. So with my, my definition, how in terms I understand just what transphobia really is, it would be just like a hatred, a hatred of uh, people who identify as trans, like a, a, a pure, like discriminating hatred that, that you don't want them to either live. You don't want them to just be able to, live their lives in a way that uh, even if they're not infringing on other people's rights, you still don't want them to just be able to live their lives in peace, right? Things like that. Whereas the activist definition, it would include that uh, in stuff in terms of like wanting them to be dead or things like that, but um, they go way further. So every single thing that I have said here is considered transphobic. Anything from the biology of the sexes to how the sexes develop in the womb or across species, the fact we only have two sexes, uh, the fact of like the impacts of puberty blockers, or the fact that um, there's, you know, the males have a huge advantage in sports. All of those things are considered transphobic. They go against their ideology because they cannot have any question of their ideology if they want it to continue. They want complete, complete, uh, basically submission to every single one of their beliefs, because that's how they get people to believe in this delusion and believe in this falsification of reality is, is to <laughs> make people fall in line on every level. It's how totalitarian regimes work. They force you to submit and to just shut up and participate in the delusion. And as long as people can continue to do that, the delusion will continue. And by the way, it will continue to harm trans people as well. So, you know, Walter, you can speak to that as well. I would say this again, I'm not, I'm not a Webster dictionary or whatnot. In my mind, if you're homophobic, transphobic, that means you're scared. You want to harm somebody. You want to kill them, whatever the case may be. Um, for me, it's, Hey, you can do you, but uh, I don't agree. I may not agree with it, but also it's not something we should be promoting with kids under age 18. Right. Uh, so that's where it's like, when it comes to the whole transgender and whatnot, you know, Timmy, Sally, whatever, like, it's not something that should be encouraged, uh, you know, should not be encouraged as people are, are going through puberty or going, going through like crucial times of their life from like 10 to 18, well, even, even 22, because you know, most people don't know what they want to do even when right. they go to college. So it's crazy to be like, hey, you're going to make these these decisions, these lifelong decisions 
when you're still a kid. So, uh, you know, I agree the whole, I just, the whole transgender transphobia stuff, I I think is a bunch of hogwash. Yeah. It's a way to silence people. It's a way to shut down disagreement and browbeat your enemies or even scare people into just shutting up and participating in the, in the lie. Yeah. Yeah. I'll just, I mean, I would echo some of those. I think, yeah, I, I think the actual hate or wanting to kill someone is yes, that is wrong. I think that's pretty extreme and minority. I would I would say in general, transphobia would for me would probably fall under the like denial of a job just because you're trans yeah, or denial exactly. of yeah. a home mm-hmm. or or denial of um you know those like classic discrimination food, yeah, methods. Food yeah. at the supermarket, you know, maybe yeah. if um your church if there's a church it's like we're actually not going to serve you communion um you, yeah. you don't fall under um our our, our current guidelines of of created order made right. in god's image type deal like that would not be transphobic in this nor would nor do i think it would be homophobic for a church to deny a, a gay wedding right. um right but, yeah um but in general you know just like treating someone Mm-hmm. correctly in a vein of respect i i think uh and and just be like i hate you because you want because you're you're wearing a dress i'm like okay i think that's kind of weird but like yeah. i'm not <laughs> yeah, gonna be right, like a... let's let's burn them at the right. stake type deal so i i yeah i would largely agree with you guys but more on a practical level like yeah you shouldn't deny people a place to live just because they're taking process for it. i don't agree with their right. choice but at the same time a place to live. right that's the difference like you know if they're going to a grocery store they're getting food or whatever they're buying a house like that doesn't infringe on other people's rights if they're trying to for example a male trying to compete in, fe- in the female sports category then that's infringing on females rights and then you know that's an opportunity where yes they have to discriminate against those males bar them from female sports and it's a it's a type of it's a type of discrimination that's actually necessary and not in a negative way but just in a way that protects emails. We're going to take a quick break and have a word from a sponsor. Shenandoah Coffee Roasters has been a staple of Charlottesville since 1993. They offer over 25 varieties of specialty, boutique, and gourmet coffee using only the finest Arabia coffee from all over the world. Coffee is their passion and they painstakingly search out the best coffee available. Nothing is taken for granted as they continually strive to provide the best coffee they possibly can. They roast all their coffees to order based on the needs of their espresso bar, ensuring that only the freshest and highest quality coffee leaves their roasting house. Grab a cup at any of their three locations, Main Restaurant Preston, on the corner, or on Ivy Road. Or order a bag online at ShenandoahJoe.com. Okay, so what's next for you? Uh a lot of a lot of stuff <laughs> we have a lot of stuff planned at the paradox institute we have we want to continue making our animated videos we also have two future books planned so the one book is called the abcs of sex determination where we look at a bunch of different species and plants like species like plants and animals across the plant animal kingdoms we look at all these different mechanisms that develop male and female sexes but show that male and female are still universally defined by gamete type and we're gonna have beautiful, colorful illustrations of these plants and animals, almost like a field guide to these plants and animals going through the alphabet. And then with uh, the other one is a thing called the Sex Development Handbook. And that is a book that will feature about 20 or so disorders of sex development. And in each spread on the left and right, it'll feature a chart of the development path. 
and then text describing the condition, describing its causes, describing the effects and like the treatment and things like that. And that'll give a good overview of sex development for people and, and also those disorders. Um, and then from there, we're just gonna continue creating articles on our website and creating uh, pamphlets and other material. And we just wanna keep educating others on sex and gender and the differences and the, and the important differences between males and females. Awesome. Very good. Well, ho hopefully you guys will be allowed in public schools and be able to share the opposing view uh, mm -hmm. as I think would be appropriate um, in such in this day and age. Yeah, we have a lot of good educational material that would be great for middle schoolers and high schoolers, high schoolers. And we want to eventually maybe do some material for elementary school kids as well, just to teach certain basic concepts. So yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. Well, I think Walter's got family obligations. And so do. they're pulling up right now. All right. Thank you so much. Well, enjoy. enjoy and, uh, <laughs> yeah. Everyone should go out and buy um, binary. Uh, we'll link that below along with par gender paradox and in Zach's um, Zach's Twitter and a number of other things. So Zach, thank you so much for coming on, especially late hour on the East coast. And uh, yeah. Hope to talk yeah. to you later. Yeah. Thanks. I really appreciate you having me on. It was a, it was a great conversation. Our album art was done by my wife and our theme music was composed by TJ Stokes.